Welcome to Lit Health. I'm Tracy Granzik, your host and senior director of the Center for Healthcare Narratives at the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety, along with editor-in-chief of Please See Me, an online literary magazine seeking to elevate the voices and health-related stories of vulnerable populations and those who care for them. On Lit Health, we'll be lighting a fire underneath the status quo of healthcare through interviews with authors, healthcare leaders, and policymakers, all working to create a healthcare environment that is equitable and transparent and that welcomes the needs of every patient, especially our vulnerable populations, including the mentally ill, people of color, women who feel they are still at risk in our current health system, the elderly, and anyone who feels bias or the isms affect their health or quality of life. Join us to stoke the fire. We want to hear the health-related stories from our listeners on both sides of the bed rail, the courtroom, and the aisle. Deanne Stillman is a widely published, critically acclaimed writer of literary nonfiction. Her latest book, Blood Brothers, received a starred review in Kirkus, was excerpted in Newsweek, won the 2018 Ohio Anna Award for Nonfiction, and appears on several best-of-the-year lists. Her other books include Desert Reckoning, based on a Rolling Stone piece, winner of the Spur and L.A. Press Club Awards, a Southwest Book of the Year, an Amazon editor's pick, recipient of rave reviews in Newsweek and elsewhere. 29 Palms, a true story of murder, Marines, and the Mojave, first published in 2001 and recently re-released by Angel City Press, is an L.A. Times bestseller and best book of the year that Hunter Thompson called a strange and brilliant story by an important American writer. The book is currently under option for film and is the work that we'll be discussing today on Lit Health. Her book, Mustang, published in 2008, was an LA Times Best Book of the Year, California Book Award Silver Medalist for Nonfiction, recipient of rave reviews from The Atlantic to The Economist, and is now available in audio with Angelica Houston, Francis Fisher, and John Densmore. Her essays have appeared in Lit Hub, The Independent, The New York Times, LA Times, Tin House, High Country News, The LA Review of Books, where she was a former columnist, and elsewhere. Her work is also widely anthologized. Additionally, her plays have been produced around the country, and she's a founder of the UCR Palm Desert MFA Low Residency Creative Writing Program. For more, you can find information on her website at deannestillman.com. I'm looking forward to discussing 29 Palms and how the characters in the book really exemplify some of the health inequities that play out in communities of uh, extreme poverty and well-examined by the issues of class that Deanne has researched so well. Deanne, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. I've reread 29 Palms, and I think it weighed even heavier on my soul than after the first read about 10 years ago now. And we'll get into that as to why, but I really want to focus us in on why I believe this discussion belongs on lit health. And mainly, I think it's because the desert is as much a character as are Rosie and Mandy, the, the two protagonists and the two characters, humans, that you researched and lived with their families basically for 10 years to write this book. And it's because this is a Lit Health podcast trying to light a fire under the status quo of healthcare. I really want to hone in on those social determinants of health, specifically the poverty that really underlies this entire community in the desert near 29 Palms and Joshua Tree, and which likely contributed to the girls' murders and to Underwood's ability to slip through the system to repeatedly commit the violence against women that he did. So let's start with the desert then. I mean, I know you saw, you yourself were drawn to the desert for many reasons and that those you met 
throughout the interviews for the book and relationships with the people that you met came for their own reasons. Why don't you start with your connection to Joshua Tree and what brought you there? Well, first, let me say hi, Tracy, and thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast and also for reading my book twice. I know it's a pretty intense story, so I appreciate that. As for my um, connection with the desert, it began when I was a little girl. My father used to read his favorite writers to me. One of them was Edgar Allan Poe. And in particular, he read the poem El Dorado, which had this very hallucinatory, a resonant refrain. And it went gaily bedight, a gallant night in sunshine and in shadow, had traveled along singing a song in search of El Dorado. And as I said, that was the refrain. And hearing my father repeat it became very alluring. And I started living inside that poem and traveling along with that night across the um, wide open spaces of the desert sands and galloping along with him across the red rock mesas and this into this enchanted land called El Dorado. Some of my wanderlust was fueled by the fact that my mother had taught me how to ride when I was a little girl, you know, so I knew how to do that. And it wasn't just hearing the, the poem that drew me into this enchanted land. The reason that, that there was a lot of turmoil in my household and I wanted to escape. So that was something that propelled my journey into this imaginary landscape. You know, I had never been to the desert. I was living on the mostly frozen shores of northeastern Ohio, which I wasn't crazy about. You know how you know when you're born into the wrong place. I just, I don't know, I never really felt acclimated to it. And I just always longed for wide open spaces. Yeah, I can relate. I was I was drawn to Colorado at a very young age for no apparent reason. But I think it was those wide open spaces and, and the turmoil in the home. I think that's a really key factor. Yeah, and I think there's this great American promise, you know, don't fence me in and go west young, whoever it is that you are, whatever it is that you call yourself, and you can start over. And there's there's that appeal. And, and the great wide open is always wide open, and, and, and it's available for one and all. So if you want to um, check it out, have at it. <laughs> so did, did you find that was pretty much the same with the characters in the book? Mandy and Rosie and, and her family are all kind of transplants, landed there for different reasons, right? Well, yes. I mean, the desert is a refuge and a sanctuary for a very wide range of people. I mean, certainly some people have grown up there, but it, but it, it is, um, you know, a draw for, for a lot of people who want to start over in their lives. Let, let me read you the opening paragraph from my prologue, which is called Prelude to a Kill. The concern here is the Mojave Desert, the dry baptismal font of national consciousness mythological birthplace of America. It takes a big white-hearted desert to fuel the pursuit of happiness, vast stretches of emptiness to suggest that the world can be possessed like an oyster, extreme tableau of beauty to obliterate all memory of bad news. Have a nice day, the Mojave Desert tells the crossing parade, the Donner Party, the seekers of buried treasure, the cowboys, the ranchers, the people who rush for Hollywood gold. Good luck. Think positive. So there you have it. The desert's kind of a trickster. It promises everything and 
maybe delivers a fair amount of trouble, depending on, you know, what's going on with, with you in any particular moment. And the character, the people I write about in my book, you mentioned Mandy and Rosie. I'll set, set up the story uh, for people who don't know the names. My book tells the story of, of two girls, Mandy, Scott, and Rosalie Ortega, who were killed by a Marine, Valentine Underwood, after the Gulf War in 1991. And um, it really takes a, a deep look at the uh, world of rootless kids who live in the shadows of the world's largest marine base and also at the edge of Joshua Tree National Park. So right away, there's this duality. There's the military where men and women are trained to protect the country, but also in many uses of violence. Then there's this incredible beauty of Joshua Tree National Park. It's just a stunning place. And the Joshua Tree itself is this very magical cactus which kind of looks like a radar station and i feel that you know if you get quiet out there and listen you can you get you can hear certain incoming messages there's a whole history to joshua tree and the mysticism i guess that surrounds it for the community out there isn't there well for lots of people you know as i've said many times the desert has whispered to everyone from jesus christ to timothy mcveigh so you know, it depends. It depends what you're in the mood for, I guess. <laughs> but it, let me tell you about how I first got into the story. I myself was hiking in Joshua Tree National Park, and I'm a longtime desert pilgrim. And I came in one day, came into a local bar after a hike, and um, I heard some locals gossiping about two girls who had been quote unquote sliced up by a Marine. And I asked who they were. And, and one of the one of the locals said, oh, just some trash in town. So that immediately disturbed me because I had spent a fair amount of time out there by then. And um, I knew a lot about the kids in town. And I knew that there was much, much more to the story. And referring to two girls who had been sliced up, again, I'm quoting by a Marine as trash, just didn't seem right to me. And I wanted to give them names and tell their stories. And I think I kn knew that my lifelong connection with the desert and then an early experience that my family had, which was an extreme reversal of fortune, bringing me into contact with America's castaways, gave me an immediate kind of understanding or instinctive knowledge of what was going on with these girls, but I really wanted to find out what happened and to tell their stories. So I knew then and there that I was going to head down that trail, head down their trail and, and find out what happened. Yeah. You were their advocate when they didn't have a voice. And I think that's really important. I think zip code predicts up to 60% of our well-being and our health, according to a recent Blue Cross Blue Shield story over this past summer. And we can see that in different places where we live. I mean, I saw that in Chicago, that one mile south of the Mag Mile at Randolph, you know, predicted almost a decade's difference in life expectancy. And you really did depict the deep poverty and the hopelessness of Rosie and Mandy's situation. Although I don't know that they felt that. As a reader, I felt how stuck they were. I mean, we both just talked about how we were called to these wide open spaces as a way to expand our universe. And 
here they land in a, in a wide open space and, and are trapped by the, the conditions of their, you know, family legacies, I guess. That cloud hung over me throughout the second reading, but also because I knew they were destined to be victims of this sexual violence, I guess, which shouldn't be a prerequisite of poverty. Yet, you know, generations of violence, abuse and trauma were, were attached to the girl's legacy in a way. And I guess my question is, you know, as you were getting to know them, what did you find most disheartening when talking to Debbie, Mandy's mom, about her history and, and how it affected Mandy? Well, it wasn't just disheartening. I mean, the people whose stories I tell here, Mandy and Rosie and their friends, are some of the fiercest and most loyal people I've ever met in my life. They form very deep friendships, kind of because they have to. They really depend on each other in big ways. I mean, here, Mandy and Rosie were young girls, Mandy especially, who was, the murders happened on the eve of Mandy's 16th birthday. And she was the town baby's babysitter. I mean, she took, she, here she was a teenager taking care of other teenagers' babies or children of Marines who had been deployed or children of men who were maybe in jail or parents who were just you know, who are strung out or just like not available for their kids. So something I always look for in the stories I tell is where is the grace and the carnage? And I found it here. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to write this story at all. I wouldn't have been able to spend 10 years on this trail. So to me, it's not a story of hopelessness that I, I was telling. It's a story of what people do to endure in spite of with Mandy and Rosie, a legacy of poverty and violence that went back for generations. Mandy's family came west with a Donner Party, which, of course, was, as we all know, was a very rough crossing. And her family, of course, survived. And they didn't make that wrong turn at Hastings Cut. They, um, you know, came successfully through the desert and settled in California from the Midwest. And Rosie's family was Filipina, and she grew up in a shack in the jungles of Batangas. And the only way out of there for a lot of people, including her mother, was uh, marrying into the military. So she, she married um, a soldier in the army and ultimately followed him or moved with him to 29 Palms. or to not to, She was at a base in the Mojave Desert near 29 Palms. Debbie wanted to start over coming from Northern California, where she grew up, you know, after her family had settled there generations ago, you know, with their arrival via the Donner Party. She, after a kind of year, spending years with the Hells Angels and so on, and becoming involved in dangerous, violent relationships, she decided to start over in the desert and move to 29 Palms. Where, as we've been talking about, you can kind of disappear and, and, and reinvent yourself. You can cast off a lot of difficulties, seemingly. But as I explore in my book, these legacies that stretch back for generations are hard to shake. Everybody has a legacy that can propel them, or maybe it's hard to shake, or both. The deck was kind of stacked against Mandy and Rosie, you know, in their world. There's a, a, a strand running through a lot of the stories I tell, and that's where's dad? You could 
the subtext to this story in a big way is where's dad? A lot of the people in this story did not have a father on the premises, or if they did, you know, he was either emotionally unavailable or gone for large amounts of time. So that's that's a factor here. Where's where's dad is kind of a subtext running through it. So the girls, the mom, you know, we have single moms here who take on support jobs for the Marine base in town. So that means, you know, working at bars and bowling alleys and so on. Debbie was a bartender in 29 Palms and a very popular one and a very charismatic person. And she had her own following. And, um, you know, Marines between deployment would come in and want to hang out with her. And she knew what everybody's favorite drink was. And she was the center of a certain scene, which really was, you know, they were all taking care of each other, but also had, but also in spite of great odds. I mean, we're talking about military families, Vietnam vets, Gulf War vets, people with Gulf War syndrome, people with Agent Orange syndrome, or some people who were doing just fine. But, you know, this is America's working class. And and um, I'm talking about in the 90s, shortly after the Gulf War. And in a lot of ways, my book is all about class, which is America's dirty little secret. It's kind of become front and center in the past few years. But when I was writing this book, it was not. Yeah. You know, we're touching on so many different things. There's so much that you brought up. That deep sense of community. And while the data and health outcomes data shows, you know, that it affects their overall, overall well-being, they still, if you asked them, would they say, oh, God, I wish I could, I had better health insurance. You know, you, you talk to the where's dad piece of this and the and the data, current data for San Bernardino County and the poverty related to single moms is is the highest in California. You know, so while they're like you said, it's not so much the hopelessness that you write about, but the more endearing or the more resilient qualities of your characters. I mean, we can't overlook that they survived through so many things to to get to where they were to be together. The question, I guess, you know, it's funny because every time I talk to you about this book, our conversation seemed to go in a in a similar but a little bit different direction. And I wonder what the families would say about the social determinant of health that they're living. You know, with the substance abuse that was a coping mechanism for so many of the characters. I mean, the night that the girls were killed, the guys were out abusing alcohol. Well, let me just interject. The night the murders happened on Dollar Drink Night at the local bars, which was something that happened every Marine payday, every two weeks when the Marines got paid. So Dollar Drink Night was a night when the violence in town spiked. Right. And I mean, everyone who drinks too much doesn't go out and commit violence or a murder. So, I mean, there's an undiagnosed mental illness that's there or a PTSD that's there. Um, I love that the underlying a social determinant of health here is class or poverty, because I think that doesn't get the attention, especially right now, that it it really needs. Because I think if you look across the board, it's income level and and you know I mentioned zip code. I mean there are reasons, sure, that we have projects and they're defined by politicians back in the fifties, and you know specifically speaking to Chicago, but I think poverty is such a rate limiting step for well-being overall, no matter who you are or where you come from. In terms of the class issue and how it 
you know, impact health, back to your, your big question, some of the women and girls I met had married members of either Marines or other branches of the armed services because that's the, that was the only way they could get health insurance. So they might not have married Marines if there were other ways for them to get health insurance. Their jobs weren't providing it. So here, there's a situation whereby certain marriages are forced. I mean, look, Rosie's mother, the Ortega family, got out of the Philippines because Rosie's mother married someone who was in the army. So the, you know, the military provides a way out of dire circumstances for people locally here in the States and all over the world. Yeah. And I guess that speaks to more of the feeling that the girls were trapped because they relied on these at times very violent, mentally ill, substance abusing men to give them stability, which is ironic. I mean, yeah, they did so much for the community. I mean, you could if, you know, reading this book, you could call them the foundation and the fabric of that community, the women. Well, they are. I describe them as patriots. They're collateral damage of the Gulf War. They took care of Marines before they were deployed. They babysat their kids. They cooked for them. They partied with them. They um, sent them off to war. They greeted them when they came home. And then they ended up being killed by one. So they are collateral damage and they are patriots. And their bodies were left on the field in this sexual war zone. Right. And it continues. I mean, I think that's the thing that was so personal this time. And and I mentioned this, you know, previously to you is that I have nieces who are about their age. And I think that's why I was so just angered by it, because we have the Harvey Weinsteins of the world and the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world. And now this sex in the city dude, God only knows if, you know, you don't the truth to these things, if there's half a truth to it. I mean, as writers and filmmakers, we know that, it you know, Truth is stranger than fiction. So we know Epstein is was a criminal. We know Weinstein was a criminal. He's convicted of it. I mean, that's today in affluent places, you know, and I think that being a woman should not be a social determinant of health. I'm wondering how much this has come up in conversations that you've had about the book, about just that in general, about women being victims. Well, I always said that this was a them too story, but the I only started saying that a few years ago when the Me Too movement took off. I mean, I was writing about these issues, you know, way before all this stuff was happening. And I'll say this, as you know, I mean, you were in my classes, my creative writing classes at UC Riverside. I would say at any given time, one third of my female students were writing about sexual violence, being raped or, you know, other terrible tales involving their lives. And um, I've been hearing these stories, I would say, going on 15 years now. So the nationwide epidemic of this kind of thing, and as you say, it pervades all classes. When I say class, I'm talking about America's castaways. I'm talking about people whose stories are overlooked, people who are not taken seriously, people who have no voice in our culture. You know, when the locals I heard gossiping couldn't even name the girls who had been killed, but described them as just some trash in town. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Trash, you know, they've been cast away and, you know, living in a place which has kind of been neglected as well. Beautiful though it is. I mean, it has Joshua Tree National Park, which is just, you know, one of the 
gems of the world, this natural wonder. And, you know, something I, I look at in my book is this, is how can we get back to what's sacred and what, how can we reconnect with, with the land? You know, it's really important. And that's why the desert is a main character in my book, because it does, it provides, it provides comfort and beauty and solace. And, uh, you know, to me, it's kind of a, well, I'll just leave it at that. It's, it's a reconnecting with the sacred is where it's at. That's all I can say. I love it. And I think too, you know, it's reconnecting with one another. I mean, it's interesting that we're having this conversation on the winter solstice. Oh, right. Yeah. Which, you know, is, is kind of a starting over point. And, right. That's important. Yeah. And, and I, you know, one of the reasons I started Please See Me, that online lip mag is to, to really elevate the voices of vulnerable populations and those who care for them who haven't had a voice. Everyone should have a voice when it comes to their health. And have access to, you know, some type of quality care. And that's a whole nother topic um, that we can't touch right now because the, the health inequities are really front and center in my Center for Healthcare Narratives. But, and this podcast is really about, you know, transparency and, and shedding light on these things that are still, you know, as you say, cast away. And, you know, in these places that are gorgeous and call to us, but yet there's still communities all over the country that are struggling with poverty that that is limiting the quality of their overall well-being. Right. That's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I know we're going to get cut off here in, in uh, about hopefully not too soon, but I have two more topics I wanted to cover um, the writing of the book and, and the future. Let's start with the writing, because how you chose to tell this story to me is masterful and you know, I loved being in your class and learning from you and, and, and just your whole style of, of letting stories evolve and letting students find their story was a really cool first exposure to that MFA program. So I thank you for that. But, you know, half of the battle in writing anything of this magnitude and, you know, again, it's been compared to like Truman Capote's In Cold Blood and I can completely see why um, because it is so well-researched the structure of the project is so key to telling the story and that you save the murder for a few pages. Like you said, it's not about the murder. It's about class and about the lives that come together in the community. How did that structure come into play? Because it kept the conflict going. It kept readers turning the pages, but it also keeps, you know, Underwood in his place, so to say. Well, I had written a number of drafts of 29 poems before I finally got it right. This is a very tricky story to tell because I wanted to focus on the lives of the girls. I wanted to tell the story of the trial. I wanted to tell the backstory of the of 29 Palms itself and, and um, weave in prehistory and the geology of the Mojave. There were a lot of strands I was trying to weave together. And first I wrote the whole story chronologically. You know, the families arrive in the desert and then the girls make friends and then they encounter some dangerous people and are killed and the end. And it just, it was just really boring. And uh, I reshuffled the deck a number of times and it wasn't working. And uh, I finally hired an editor on the outside of my publishing house because, well, let me backtrack for a second. The woman who originally acquired my project was Rachel Clayman. This was at William Morrow and um, a wonderful editor of literary nonfiction who actually went on to become Obama's editor. But she 
was a big supporter of this project from the get-go. By the time I turned it in, like ten years later, I didn't. I mean, I had no idea how long it was going to take, but that's what that's what happened. You know, I had to step away from writing the story a few times because it was so intense. At any rate, she was. There had been a, several mergers. You know, one publishing house took over another, and so on and so forth. And so she was gone by the time I turned in my manuscript and the editor. I ended up. I landed with just didn't get what I was doing at all, and I wasn't giving me notes that were very, very helpful. So I hired somebody on the outside who suggested alternating my story, you know, the girls and their families with a story of the trial and the story of the place and then try and weaving things together, you know, as appeared organically to me, which is what I ended up doing. And, and that suggestion made my book much more dynamic and made it what it is actually. So that's how I, that's how I ended up ended up with the current structure. It was, you know, trial and error, really. And I I, I agree that the structure and, and the way it played out was key. And, and all the things that you mentioned go into putting a book of this quality together at the end of the day. So thanks for sharing that for listeners who, you know, really want to start working on a project. Oh, sure. Yeah. By the way, I have private students, if anybody's interested. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. So how can people, uh, while we're on that tech, how can people get a hold of you if they do want to know more about the book, about process, about learning how to how to write? What they should do is go through my website and email me through my website, which is deannestillman.com. Terrific. And your email's on there. My email's on there, yeah. And you're Deanne Stillman too on Twitter, is that correct? On Twitter, that's right, yeah. Okay. Um, and we'll we'll try and you know facilitate that as well if if people oh that'd be great they can reach out to us so let's end on the future um, you know like you did in the book Debbie and and you end the book on the Mandy Scott scholarship and you you had said that Debbie that was Debbie's idea but you chose to end with that celebration of of her life and and also of getting another young person out of a situation that maybe wasn't too good for them. Have you seen any other positive programs or scholarships for children in the desert? No, but this was an amazing thing that Debbie did. I mean, here, here's the mother of a, of a girl who was killed on the eve of her 16th birthday, which is, you know, should be a, a moment of great hope and promise. And uh, it wasn't. And um, what Debbie decided to do on the one year anniversary of, of Mandy's death was to give away a scholarship in Mandy's name, and she raised funds for it. It was $1,000, which the idea was that it would go to help an average girl get out of town, if you can imagine that. So people would come into the bar where she was working during the months prior to the awarding of, of this scholarship, and they would donate like matchbook collections and food stamps, and it was really amazing. And um, this was all in service of of raising $1,000. And then at the end of the year, she had it. And there was, and people, to win it, people, girls in town submitted an essay saying, outlining what they would do with the scholarship if they won it. And so at this incredible bar party, maybe the most amazing bar party I've ever been to, you know, with lots of classic rock playing and um, the house band called Velvet Hammer cranking out, you know, lots of metal covers and so on and mandy's wide range of friends there 
Crips, Bloods, Marines, bikers. I mean, it was a real tribute to the range, to her, basically. it's The party said a lot about the impact she had on an incredible range of people. So at this party, Debbie awarded the $1,000 Mandy Scott Scholarship to an average girl in town who wrote a really good essay about wanting to get out of, get out of Dodge and, and study law enforcement. And she did leave at some point. And, and, and uh, I don't know where she landed, but that was just the idea of this scholarship fund that, you know, was giving away $1,000 to help an average girl get out of town. I mean, that's all it took. And that to me was, that's a beautiful thing. You see what I'm saying when I, t- when I say I look for the, I look for the grace and the carnage. There it is. Yes. And, you know, I'm always trying to solve problems. I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. And I just, you know, I wonder, clearly that was a one-time thing, right? I mean, her, the Mandy Scott scholarship hasn't continued or has it? This We're talking 10 years ago, but not much has changed in terms of the pop, the poverty level in the community. Well, I don't know. I mean, you checked out the stats in San Bernardino County, but 29 Palms says... And, and surrounding areas, especially Joshua Tree, have become gentrified in a big way. I mean, Joshua Tree is almost like the Brooklyn of the desert at this point. So I, you know, um, it's still, it's a 29 Palms is a Marine, you know, it's a Marine. It, it's the portal into Joshua Tree National Park. It's still headquarters for the world's largest Marine base. So there are certain things there that, you know, that are ongoing. But, um, you know, there's a slightly different dynamic at this point. The point is, I'm not sure that the, Mandy Scott Scholarship Fund should, you know, this was a thing unto itself, a beautiful thing unto itself. It exists in time on its own. Just a beautiful thing. Good point. Well, I think that this this could be a lead into another podcast looking at, you know, how healthcare is doing in the desert, doing in, in San Bernardino County in general by talking to some healthcare professionals. So it's giving me all kinds of additional ideas for next episodes. And I, I'm grateful for you to, for putting this book into the world because I think, um, you know, these are the stories that I really, that resonate with me being kind of an underdog from Des Plaines, Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciated this. You want to end on telling us about your next project? Oh, yes. I'm writing a book called Ghost Cats, which is about the last mountain lions of Los Angeles. You know, one of my previous books is Mustang, about wild horses in the West and the ongoing wars against them. And um, as we were discussing, uh, see, uh, what's sacred and, and the land, wildlife, those those are things that run through all of my work. So, you know, it's kind of a natural for me to um, take a look at wildlife in Los Angeles, where I live. And uh, did you know that L.A. is the only city of in the world, apart from Mumbai, that has mountain lions living on its perimeter. I didn't realize that. I thought Colorado had some, too. I, I remember mountain lions. Well, it does, but I'm saying the only major metropolis that has mountain lions on its perimeter, apart from Mumbai. It's amazing that that we have these mountain lions around us, and they're under siege. And so my book, Ghost Cats, is taking a look at their lives and you know how we can reconnect with the sacred right here in Los Angeles and what the role of mountain lions is in our lives and the, our ecosystem and um, why we need them here and, and they have a right to be here. Yeah. I love that you connect with the spirit of animals. I mean, I, 
My dogs were barking earlier, so you know I'm clearly an animal. All right, it's okay with me. <laughs> Horse, leave them in. Leave them. Leave them in. It's okay. I don't mind. Right? Yeah. Well, thank you again, and um, yeah, I, I'll let you know when this launches, and and we can share it widely, and and give Twenty Nine Palms a true story of murder Marines in the Mojave another boost because it's it was relaunched kind of with this ten year relaunch, wasn't it? Well, this is the 20th anniversary this year. That's right. Yeah, I misspoke. Yeah. God, I can't tell. It's going too fast. It was pretty amazing. Most, not very many books stay in print for this long, for one thing. So, yeah, and 20, you know, it's a, it's a significant anniversary. And I spent 10 mm-hmm. years of my life working on the book. So it's, you know, it's, um, you know, just a big part of, of the things I've accomplished. Yeah. One of the centerpieces of a very wonderful body of work, which people can find on your website. Oh, thank you, Tracy. I really appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Let's close it out. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Great talking with you.